We're reading the letter of Jude. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, to those who have been called, who are loved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. For certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. Though you already know all this, I want to remind you that the Lord at one time delivered his people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their positions of authority, but abandoned their proper dwelling, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. In the very same way, on the strength of their dreams, these ungodly people pollute their own bodies, reject authority and heap abuse on celestial beings. But even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not himself dare to condemn him for slander, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Yet these people slander whatever they do not understand, and the very things they do understand by instinct, as irrational animals do, will destroy them. Woe to them! They have taken the way of Cain. They have rushed for profit into Balaam's error. They have been destroyed in Korah's rebellion. These people are blemishes at your love feasts, eating with you without the slightest qualm shepherds who feed only themselves. They are clouds without rain, blown along by the wind, autumn trees without fruit and uprooted, twice dead. They are wild waves of the sea foaming up their shame, wandering stars for whom blackest darkness has been reserved forever. Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about them, See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone and to convict all of them of all the ungodly acts they have committed in their ungodliness and of all the defiant words ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These people are grumblers and fault finders. They follow their own evil desires. They boast about themselves and flatter others for their own advantage. But dear friends, remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ foretold. They said to you, in the last times there will be scoffers who will follow their own ungodly desires. 
These are the people who divide you, who follow mere natural instincts and do not have the spirit. But you, dear friends, by building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. Be merciful to those who doubt. Save others by snatching them from the fire. To others show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God, our Saviour, be glory, majesty, power and authority through Jesus Christ, our Lord, before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. This is God's word. Good evening, everyone. If we've not met, uh, my name is Matt Fuller, the vicar here. And if you're joining us tonight, it's a slightly odd evening, I guess, in one sense, to, to, to be joining us. Um, the letter of Jude is um, a little more combative um, than lots of places of Scripture, but it's something that we very much need to hear. So let me pray as we look at this together. Our great God and Father, we come before you this evening knowing that you are the only God, our Saviour. You are the one worthy of glory and majesty and power and authority now and forevermore. And Lord, we know that one day we'll stand before you. And what a wonderful day we'll be, cleansed completely by our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, standing faultless. And Lord, on that day, we want to know that we've honored you. Honored you in how we've lived. Honored you by standing up for what is true and rejecting what is false. So Father, part as, as part of that, Teach us to love the Lord Jesus Christ by contending for him, we pray in his name. Amen. I read uh, an article uh, a couple of weeks ago uh, just about the, the war in Ukraine. It was reflecting on as we sort of draw near to a year. And um, uh, it commented, that it, this was news at the time, but in the first month after a, a conflict broke out, um, 80,000, uh, mostly men, but not exclusively, um, who were working in the West went back to Ukraine to fight. And uh, they interviewed a number of these people. There was um, uh, Alex was a lorry driver from Canada. Uh, Andre was a, a lawyer in the UK. Um, most notoriously, possibly, uh, Sir, I get this wrong, but Sergei Stakovsky, the multimillionaire tennis player, went back gave up affluence, gave up comfort, UK, Canada. I don't know where Stan lives. Um, Sergei Stokowski lives all over the place, I guess. Um, but millions. Why? To fight. Why do you give up all that comfort? And go and sit in a trench, as they are at the moment. Very little seems to have moved on in 100 years. Because, as you interviewed these guys, why would they do that? Because they love their country. 
and they love their people. And it was all a risk. So the tone, it's quite hard in an interview, isn't it? But the tone very much, but why would you give up your affluent salary in, in the UK and go and fight in the Ukraine? The response carried the tone, tone certainly in the article of bewilderment. But our country is at risk. Of course we'd fight. Of course we'd give this up. We love our people. We love our country. Of course we'd fight. The book of Jude is a call for Christians to fight. Not with guns, not with bullets, but with prayer, with godly character, with words, yes, gracious but clear verbal refutation of error, but to fight because the gospel's at stake. Not just a homeland, not just people, but a message, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, which saves people from hell for heaven. So the eternal destiny of many, many, is at stake. Fight. You've got to recognize that the Christian faith is under threat. And you're not allowed to sit this one out. You can't say, someone else needs to fight. It's not my thing. No, we're all called to do it. For the name of Jesus. Now you may well ask, oh, for goodness sake, why do we have to look at the letter of Jude? I've had a rough week. Can you just tell us nice things about God? Can you tell us wonderful things about Jesus? Can't we just be positive? I mean, there are a lot of good bits of the Bible, right? Um, why this one? Well, that's a fair comment in one sense. I mean, most of the term, don't worry, we're only here for a few weeks. Most of the term is going to be in the book of Acts. And it's very exciting and everything's growing and it's electric stuff. But um, if you feel a little bit like that, oh, God, I do, God, angels and everlasting darkness and what? Um, well, Jude feels a bit like you do too. So he writes uh, in verse 3 of the letter, a uh, little letter here. Dear friends, although I was very eager to write you about the salvation we share, I, I, I just don't, I'd much rather talk about the, the, the wonders of being a Christian. In fact, I couldn't really stop myself in the introduction. Look, I'm Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, verse 1. I, I just got to tell you, I just got to remind you, I'm writing this to you who have been called wonderfully. You're a Christian not because of any merit in you, but because before the creation of the world, God said, I'm going to bestow my love upon you. Isn't that wonderful? And um, you're loved in God the Father. One of the recurrent emphases, of course, of the, of the New Testament. When you think Father, you're meant to think love. What is God? When I look up and think God is a Father, what does he think of me? You're meant to think he loves you. When you're conscious and you're aware that you've screwed up and you've got something wrong and you've sinned and you think, oh, how does God think of me now? You think Father, he loves me. Isn't that great, says Jude? I'm going to recurrently tell you that. You're loved, and verse 2, mercy be and love be yours. Dear friends, literally beloved, loved ones, I want to keep telling you about God's love for you. And a third little thing in the introduction, you're kept for or by Jesus Christ, depends how you translate the little uh, Greek verb uh, word, uh, for or by, but both are true. You're kept by Jesus. He'll keep you going. 
He'll keep you going into the end, and you're kept for him. What is your hope? What is our hope? It's to be in glory with the Lord Jesus Christ. What's the best thing about heaven? He is. He's there, and you're with him. Isn't that great, says Jude? That's what I want to talk to you about. But I can't. Because if we want to enjoy these blessings, you have to fight for them. If you want Ukraine to be free and the families to be safe and your loved ones to not fear bombardment, and you have to fight. And if you want the blessings of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, you have to contend so that it's not broken. Christians are called to contend because the faith is under threat. And without defending it, we could lose that truth ourselves. It's a message that others may give up on. It's a message that, a message that others will never hear. So you have to contend for the faith. In practical terms, stick with it. Speak of it. Does say if you're visiting this this week, you think, "Golly, is this what the church is always like?" No, but sometimes you have to engage on these issues, and there is a presenting issue at the moment uh, within the Church of England and lots of churches, I'd say, in the West. Uh, and that presenting issue is of same-sex marriage and it perverting the gospel, as Jude would say. Now. In one sense, I, I want to spend a good chunk of time persuading you of that fact, but it is something we've spoken of uh, fairly frequently at some length, um, a little series back in the summer, you could, I'd easily point you to. Actually, for the sake of getting on with the book of Jude, I'm mostly just going to assert that now, that from the book of Genesis through to the book of Revelation, the bookends of the Bible, marriage is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ and his church. He is the groom, the church is the bride, from the beginning to the end of the scriptures. And if you mess with that picture and say no longer a man and a woman, but two men or, or, or two women, you are messing with salvation. You are ripping apart how the Bible says you can be saved. Now, if you think, whoa, 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 okay, do come and chat to me afterwards. But I'm going to just state that this evening, perhaps absurdly. But um, many would have seen it in the press this week. Uh, I mean, the, the media reports with varying degrees of accuracy. But um, the Church of England, after a period of uh, sort of, I don't know what you'd call it, discussion, I don't know. Anyway, uh, public pronouncements from the Church of England, actually from the bishops of the Church of England uh, this week, saying, well, here's the intention. We've been talking about marriage internally in the Church of England for the last six years, and uh, here's what's happening. There will be, well, two contradictory things were said. One, no change to the doctrine of marriage or the liturgy of marriage within the Church of England. And secondly, we will now be conducting services of blessing for those who've conducted a civil partnership. And... To any right, clear-thinking person, that is absolutely incoherent. No change, but services of blessing. It's absurd. 
So even, I'm afraid to say, the Archbishop of Canterbury stood up and said, isn't it wonderful? We've got these new services of blessing for people who've had a civil partnership. It's, it's wonderful. It's wonderful. Obviously, I won't be doing them because, um, 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 well, I, I'll upset people. Well, he's right. He'll upset certainly 80% of the world's Anglicans who vehemently would disagree with that. It's an incoherent position. And it won't last very long because actually everyone's upset. Those who want gay marriages in church, those who think the Bible says you mustn't do that, everyone's upset. So I don't think this position will last very long. And what actually happens, who can tell? Now, I, I think he, it's well-intentioned, I imagine. I have no doubt, reason to doubt the motives. But it is a spectacular failure of leadership. It's appalling, I think, the statements that have been made this week. And once it's, look, just so you understand these things, the House of Bishops in the Church of England, probably about a third want there to be change, a third are vehemently against change, and a third just put their heads in the sand and say, please, let's go away. That's kind of where it's at. So there's no unanimity there. So that's why you get this absurd, incoherent statement is produced. Hopeless. But when you distort the picture of marriage, you distort the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Jude would say, you must contend. I know we don't want to, but we must contend. A short letter then, uh, Jude, uh, just the, the, the one chapter. Uh, the guts of it is verses 3 and 4, and we'll look at them tonight. And uh, the rest of the letter really is... Um, expanding on the themes of verses 3 and 4. So it's very simple. It's not hard to understand what's going on uh, in these couple of verses. Jude says, contend for the faith because it's being perverted. What are we to do? Contend for the faith. Why do that, Jude? Because it's being perverted. It's very simple. Just those two then. Contend for the faith, he says. Verse 3. Let me read it again. Dear friends or beloved, although I was very eager to write you about the salvation we share, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. So the purpose of this letter is not very hard. Contend. The word means fight, used, used elsewhere for wrestle or going to court and having a legal battle or Literally, being in a war. Fight. Same as um, Paul uses, uh, 1 Timothy 6, fight the good fight of the faith. It's a strong word that gets used here. Conflict, contest, fight. Let me ask a few questions. Uh, first, what are we fighting for? We're fighting for, uh, three little questions. What are we fighting for? We're fighting for the faith. That's what he talks about here. I felt con, uh, compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith. Not a faith. Not um, this is my truth. What's your truth? Not um, uh, a sort of Harry. My recollection may not be accurate, but it's sort of truthful because it's how I felt at the time. Not that sort of subjective, well, how do you feel about such things? The truth. The truth, the common objective truth. The salvation that we share, this is objective body of knowledge, the faith. It's once for all entrusted, we're told, to the saints. Do you see that? 
once for all entrusted. That is, there are no new iterations. It's not like your Mac or whatever thing, you know, version 6.9, 10.1. Ooh, you've upgraded to whatever it is now. Um, Ventura. Um, have you upgraded? There's no, no, once for all. My niece came to visit uh, last weekend. She's in her mid-twenties now, and all of a sudden, an uncle who lives in central London is of use to her. And... Um, <laughs> Uh, she's, 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 she's great. Um, she's great. She's a pharmacist um, down in Bristol, hospital, hospital pharmacist. And we were just chatting about work, and she likes her job. Uh, apart from the one thing that she really hates is aseptics. Uh, now, medics, forgive me, I know I'll get this mildly wrong, but you know, uh, essentially, one half a day a week for four hours, she has to go into a sterile room and sort of quality control drugs, um, so uh, chemotherapy um, solutions and things like that, has to check that they're all the right dosages and, and it does some tests on some drugs, make sure everything is, everything is good and it's the right measurement, the right dosage, it's all healthy. Um, oh, well, that sounds quite interesting. Why, why do you hate it? It's me on my own in this, in this room and I'm, I mustn't have anything. So I'm not allowed any makeup, uh, I'm not allowed any music, I'm not allowed my phone. She's 25. <laughs> Four hours without a phone. Um, so she sort of dies once a week. Um, <laughs> her phone. But it absolutely has to be sterile. Because if anything contaminates any one of these medicines, they're gone. They only work if they're pure. They only work if what's been delivered is absolutely what it's meant to be. If you add a bit and... Gone, useless, ruined. As it is, it can save lives. Contaminate it, pervert the drug, death. No health, no life. There are no, and that's the gospel. It's once for all delivered. You don't add to it. Because if you add or muck about with it, oh, I wonder, maybe this drug... Yeah, I mean, chemo, I mean, I know it does its job, but um, how about I add some Ribena? Um, it'll sort of give it a pretty colour. Um, maybe not, but be a bit more cheerful as people sit in the chair and take their drugs. Um, they don't do that. It's broken, it's ruined. The gospel, don't muck about with it. Once for all entrusted. You don't change it in 2023 because it makes it something more palatable to the culture. You do not in Jude's words, that perverts the grace of God. Don't do that. 6,000 years, the Judeo-Christian ethic has been the same. And now all of a sudden, oh, we've discovered God got it wrong. And we're going to change. No. Contend for the faith once for all delivered. That's what we're fighting for. Uh, where do we do it? In the church. Jude is talking about life inside the church. Contending language never used in the New Testament for the wider culture. This is a struggle inside the church, maybe inside a, an individual congregation, certainly with inside a denomination. Lots of letters in the New Testament address false teachings of, of various kind, errors that need contending. Uh, in Galatians, adding additional laws, laws making everything very legalistic. Um, here it's a, a lawlessness. And of course, contending in the church, most of us think, oh, but it's... It's just really horrible when Christians argue. 
and it just, oh, it's so ugly. And I know, I know. But lives are at stake. Eternity is at stake. Lose the message of salvation through Jesus Christ. There's people lost for eternity. Where do we contend in the church? And we'll see, certainly in a couple of weeks' time, we have to contend within our own hearts. Who does the contending? What are we fighting for? The faith. Where in the church? Who does the contending? I'm afraid to say it's everyone. Verse 3. Dear friends, I was very eager to write to you about salvation. I can't. I'm compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith. And he, oh, really? Matt Fuller, isn't that your job? Don't we pay you to do that sort of thing? Don't we elect a PCC? Isn't, I've never really understood it. People who, the, the parish church that runs the church, isn't that their thing? I mean, who wants to, you know, what do I have to do? And Jude says, yeah, everyone in a church is responsible for contending. Now, of course, being realistically, being realistic, some have more responsibility than others, of course. Uh, one of the frustrations, that certainly in the Anglican church, is the bishops, it's their job. You know, when you get appointed a bishop, you're asked, one of the questions you're asked is this, I don't know if it's on the screen or not, but uh, an archbishop will write, will declare, this is, there are lots of them, but here's one of the questions. The archbishop will say to someone who's about to become a bishop, be you ready? because that's how we speak in the church. <laughs> Be you ready with all faithful diligence to banish and drive away all erroneous and strange doctrine contrary to God's word and both privately and openly to call upon and encourage others to the same. Answer, I'm ready, the Lord being my helper. That is not happening. When anyone's appointed a, uh, a vicar like me, you get asked pretty much the same question. That's why I don't take very little pleasure in saying that the bishops of the Church of England are failing, but I take my job seriously. I have to do it. Yes, yeah, so, so sure, some are, um, have greater responsibility than others. It can't be that every Christian um, takes a lead in it, but... Every believer in a church, the call is to support those who are contending, yes, to care about who is on the PCC, yes. In December, uh, I caught up with a couple who used to be here, they were here for a number of years, and they moved out to the Shires, and um, uh, she was chatting to them and said, remind me, where do you settle at church? Oh, well, we danced around a bit, but then we went here. Um, and because uh, it was, for years, it was a good evangelical church. But then for about 10 years, it sort of drifted a little bit. And so we went and visited and thought, oh, I'm not sure we want to go there. They, they sort of, they've lost the plot a little bit and the Bible isn't really talk. But then a new guy was appointed and uh, he's come in and he's, 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 a, he's a gospel man and he's a Bible teacher. And we thought, oh, yeah, he's a really good guy. And we met him and you thought, yeah, no, we'd love to support you. And he said, great, you know, can you make sure you get elected onto the PCC. I'm like, yeah, yeah, we'll support you. He says, horrible. He said, because the church has drifted for 10 years on this presenting issue of same-sex marriage. The church is divided 50-50. They have this parish, the church council that runs the church, divided 50-50. He said, it's exhausting. He 
He said, every meeting you have to politely say, well, I'm not sure that's true, is it? It's a bit demoralizing. He said, so I, it's funny catching, bumping into you. It wasn't planned. Uh, funny bumping into you because I sort of want to say, thank you so much for the years at Christchurch that we know which way is up. We know what's true. We know it matters to content. But part of me wants to say, oh, if you hadn't told me all this stuff, I'd have been lazy and idle and got away with doing nothing. And now you're making me sort of work. <laughs> so so I, I don't know. I'm sort of grateful, probably, in the long run. Um, okay, well, that's sort of underwhelming feedback I get. Um, <laughs> personally, I was enormously encouraged. You see, he, he and his wife, they see it. This really matters. It really matters. By contrast, just being honest, occasionally uh, here at church, we'll, we'll have sermons such as this or matters perhaps of sexual ethics or something, and someone will always come up to me afterwards and say, oh, seriously, do, you, do we have to talk about the controversial things at church that make Christianity unpopular? It's not what people want to hear. Yeah, I, I know that. But I just... So, you know, if you ever come and say this to me, in a very polite, roundabout way, I'll end up saying, are you, are you naive or are you selfish? Because you must be very naive about your own heart if you don't think you need reminding what's true, particularly on the issues of the day where the culture is most hostile. And please don't be selfish, because some in our church family are really battling. And on the presenting issue of gay marriage and, and same-sex attraction. There are a number in church who are, yeah, same-sex attracted and celibate. And they really need to hear it. And they would say to you, every time you say, don't say anything from the front, it makes my life harder and harder and harder. What does it mean to contend? Well, at the most minimal level, you recognize we need to hear regularly the controversial truths, the truths where the Bible is most out of step with the culture. We have to. The gospel is at stake. People's eternities are at stake. We have to. Contend. Contend for the faith. What are we doing? It's the faith once for all delivered. Where do we do it? In the church. Who does it? We all do. Um, in later weeks, we'll think more about what that means practically in terms of what we're doing. Contend for the faith. Why? It's being secretly perverted. Verse 4, let's pick up the pace. Verse 3, that's what we're to do then, contend. Verse 4, why? Why do we do it? For, because, verse 4, for certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among, among you. They're ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ, our only saviour, and Lord, individuals have secretly slipped in among you. Not physically, of course. It's not that uh, you're sat here this evening and then uh, you'll get to the end of the service and go, oh, there's someone under my chair. Um, when did you secretly slip in among me? And uh, Not that, of course. They're, they're very obvious. They'll probably be very well known in the church, but their agenda is secret. Their agenda is to distort the gospel message. That's what's going on. And there's a sense in which Jude just wants to unmask them. And we think more next time, next week, about the, the, the characteristics of, of these sort of people. But it's a bit like the end of Scooby-Doo. They just want to pull off the mask and go, here he is. Here he is. This is what it's like. Apart from, it's serious. 
It's profoundly serious. But recognize, Jude says, they secretly sneak in. Heresy comes with a smile. False teachers, they don't dress like Darth Vader and play the Imperial March so you know they're coming. They come with a smile and often a dog collar. Be ready. A few little things about them. They're ungodly, he says. A significant word in the letter. Think more about that uh, next time. They're ungodly people. There's some immorality to them, perhaps. Secondly, more on this. They pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality. They're saying, it doesn't matter what you do, God will forgive you. God shows you grace and grace and grace. Now that is true if there is repentance. Otherwise it's false. Otherwise it's the theology of the serial rapist. I mean, you see in the press this week, David Carrick, the Met Police rapist, 49 charges against him. And every time he rapes someone, oh, it's wonderful. God forgives me. I'm forgiven. I'll go and do it again next week or next month because God forgives me. No. No, he does not. Forgiveness comes when there's repentance. I'm sorry. I change. Without that, otherwise, it's a theology of the serial abuser. It's a theology of the cult leader who sleeps with multiple women. That is abusing, perverting the grace of God and turning it into a license for immorality. There is grace upon grace upon grace for every believer if there's repentance. That's the key. So they, they distort uh, the message of grace. And um, alongside that, they deny Jesus Christ as sovereign Lord and Savior. I don't think that's a separate thing from um, perverting grace. I think it's the flip side. If you pervert the grace of God into a license for immorality, you're saying Jesus isn't my Lord. He's not my Lord. Not if I think I can just sleep around and um, that's fine. Then Jesus is not your Lord. Because if you follow him, you obey him. You know, in the Christian life, you have to hold two things together. One, God offers us grace. All sins can be forgiven in Jesus Christ. And God calls all Christians to account for their behavior. And you've got to hold on to both of those. They're both true. You lose one, and you'll be in all sorts of trouble. You lose grace, and golly, God becomes an overbearing judge. But you lose that he cares about your behavior. And it's the theology of the rapist. It's a license for immorality. Now he's talking about the teaching, the false teaching. But can I just say tangentially, here is a warning to all of us. To treat, not to treat our sins lightly. God cares about our behavior. I don't know, of course, everything that goes on in a congregation such as this. I do occasionally hear of one-night stands and, and loose morals. Sometimes chat to people who've stumbled sexually and there's a breezy, well, it's great enough, forgiven. Yeah, but have you repented? You can't outsing God's grace. There is an ocean of God's grace that will pay for anything, anything you do 
But have you repented? Have you said, I regret it? I don't want to be like that. I want to live differently. I want Jesus as my Lord. I don't just want a license for immorality. But that's the false teachers. They're saying, yeah, 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 do whatever you want. But in doing so, they deny that Jesus is sovereign and Lord. Last thing we're told, their condemnation was written about, but we think about that next time. Okay, let's stop. Let's pause it there. Let's uh, pull it together. Jude would say, contend for the faith because it's being perverted. You, me, all of us. This isn't a battle we can sit out and say, someone else's problem, not my problem. We have to be involved. I will think I say more practically about what that means in later weeks. And we all sit here or stand here and think, oh, can't we just talk about the glories of salvation, how lovely Jesus is? Yes, of course. But if, if you're going to have Jesus as your Savior, as your model, as your Lord, do take all of him. Don't pick and choose. And you look at Jesus in the Gospels and he will contend for the faith. And he will denounce the false teachers. And he will rebuke the Pharisees and say, woe to you. Much better for you to have a stone around your neck and drown today than you to lead more people into sin. Extraordinary Matthew 18. And certainly if I was some of those who have been most vocal amongst the bishops of the Church of England, I'd be petrified. Because I think Jesus is saying, woe to you. It would be better you died now than you live on this planet for another day and lead more people into sin. Wow. That's Jesus, Matthew 18. And the same Jesus who gave his life to save people the same one who is keeping you because he loves you. The same one who will take you every day of your life to be with him in glory and behold him face to face and present you spotless. That same Jesus, he's one and the same, but you can't pick and choose. He's the one Lord Jesus Christ. So let him define love and contend so that you'll meet him, so that others will meet him contend just before um, Christmas or some point in the month of December I asked an, a number um, in the church family who would describe themselves as same sex attracted uh, the debates raging at the moment what, I'm going to see the Bishop of London do you want to write down what would you like me to say to her uh, and a number did wrote things that they wanted said to the Bishop of London let me give you just a couple tonight. It would be profoundly unloving to people like me who are same-sex attracted for the Church of England to take on an unbiblical position on human sexuality. To do so would make it almost impossible for me in a culture that has so embraced same-sex relationships to live consistently with what I know is true, my biblical convictions. There would be then be no safe space where I could be open about my struggles and encouraged to be faithful as a disciple of Christ. 
I would find such a move damaging emotionally and spiritually in this life, and you would jeopardize, jeopardize my life in the next. Or more succinctly, as a gay celibate Anglican, I need care from bishops who don't patronize me by commending my self-sacrifice as celibate while teaching me it's not necessary. So to the majority of us here, I'd say, will you please love your brothers and sisters who are same-sex attracted but seeking to live faithfully for the Lord Jesus Christ by contending that is within the church saying, well done. And I'll take flack when people give me grief. And So you go to Christchurch Mayfair. That's, that's a terrible church. They don't want gay weddings there. But you'll stand with me. So if nothing else, can I say contend for the sake of your brothers and sisters? But more than that here, Jude would say, contend for the honor and the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus and his gospel are treasures of inestimable value. There is nothing more wonderful and precious than him. Will you make sure that people in the next generation and in our generation hear of him? Because the gospel is under attack. It's being perverted. And if you don't, unless you fight, unless you stand up for what is true, you'll get lost. Will you please, or indeed the Lord Jesus commands, will you contend for the faith? Let's pray together. Father, we readily, we readily understand what Jude feels like declaring he'd much rather talk about the salvation we share. But sometimes we need to be reminded we have to fight. We have to contend for the faith. Father, please would you give us, restore in us, strengthen us our resolve to stand up for what is true. Father, crucially, would we stand with brothers and sisters who are struggling acutely on this issue? Would we recognize how deeply it matters that you cannot transform marriage and leave the gospel intact? It's impossible to do that biblically. So, Father, with grace, with kindness, as Jude will tell us in later weeks, with mercy, would we contend? for the faith, knowing that the salvation that comes through the Lord Jesus Christ is the most precious truth this world has to offer. So Father, would we protect it, not let it be contaminated, not let it be ruined, not let it be broken, not let it be perverted. Father, would we stand with Jesus, we pray in his name. Amen.